Thank you. My name is Keith. I'm an alcoholic. And uh, grateful to be here tonight. Grateful to be sober. I want to thank your secretary and congratulate on a good or her on a good year. Sorry. Her boyfriend is the one who asked me to speak. And actually, my daughter, who's three years sober, is like pimping me out all over the place. She's like telling people like, oh, have my dad come speak. Or my, my wife who's sober as well. And uh, she's like telling everybody to ask us to speak everywhere, which is very sweet, you know, but then like sometimes can be a little... I mean, I'm happy to be here tonight. I had so much fun with Patrick. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I'm nothing but grateful, but uh, it's funny. Somebody from a convention down in San Diego called my wife and said, hey, your daughter said that you, you'd, you'd be happy to come down here and speak and, and give like a 10-minute share, like drive to <laughs> San Diego for 10 minutes. Like, yeah, that's just past any length. Sorry, I'm not really But I... Uh, I love the, um, actually, I love the reading. I don't know that I've, I don't think I've ever heard that read at a meeting. Uh, they stopped in time, but I got sober when I was 18 and a half years old. And I totally flash back to, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll get into my story, but this is kind of the way it's seen. And if anybody has felt like this or feeling like this, who's relatively new, I just so identified. But it seemed like all of a sudden I was kind of just dropped into AA and I started going to meetings and I had this like, definitely this like, period of grace, you know, um, and I was like, what in the hell is going on? And I was going to meetings. And like I said, I was 18 and a half years old. I did not think that I was an alcoholic. And if you're new and you don't think you're an alcoholic, that's totally fine. I didn't even know what an alcoholic was. I just didn't think I was an alcoholic. I just didn't know what the heck I was doing here. And I was confused. And I would like I was just laying in bed at night and, I, and then uh, like I'd have trouble falling asleep. So I, I, somebody had given me a big book. So I started reading that and that like put me to sleep like right away. And, uh, but one night, and this is what I thought about is one night I found that passage of the, the, the story uh, in regards to the stories that they stopped in time. And I read that and I remember thinking like, wow, like, you know, maybe that is like me at my case, maybe there is some, some reason I'm doing this and maybe I am supposed to go to AA right now. Um, by that time, I, I had only had a couple weeks sober, but by that time I'd already started to identify with people. It wasn't like, Oh wow, that's my story. I didn't hear my story right away. But when people talked about things, I definitely identified. And it was clear to me, I will say this, if you're new, there's really only one thing that I want you to get from my story or my, and, and this is it is that before I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, Right before I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I knew my life wasn't working anymore. I had this like overwhelming sense, like not just that my life wasn't working anymore, but that it was going to continue to not work the rest of my life. And there was nothing I can do about it. And uh, and there was uh, I happened to be sitting in jail when I had this realization, which is like a time for reflection for a lot of us, I think. But there, uh, I had been in a jail before. That was my first time in, in jail. But. I was sitting there and I just thought it's going to keep getting worse and worse. I'm going to keep hurting people. And this image like was flashed in my head of like just an hour or two before when I was handcuffed in the back of that car. And the woman who I assaulted was just uh, crying, like, you know, almost like hyperventilating. She was, uh, and I just was like, it's just going to keep getting worse and worse. And there's nothing I can do about it. And if you're new, really, the only thing I want you to get from my story, the only thing I want you to hear from me is that my life works today. My life works today because of what I did to get sober and Alcoholics Anonymous. 
I've been sober since June 24th, 1989, and what I continue to do to stay sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. And if you're having trouble and your life isn't working, that's really what I want you to, to hear. So we had this huge Mexican food dinner. I'm like so full, so I think I'm going to stop a little early. So thank no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Uh, we did have, I want to thank Patrick for dinner. You know, Patrick is just a good man. He's a good member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I, I, if you're new, you know, when I got here, you know, alcoholism is a disease of isolation and loneliness. And I felt so alone. I just had no, I, 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 I now I realized I was like hopeless, but I felt so isolated and alone. And I, the, by, as a result of my actions, I had really no, almost nobody in my life anymore. And it was just that in that self-imprisonment of alcoholism. And today I have this great life and I have a bunch of friends that I have. I mean, Patrick and I, and a few of our friends, we have so much history together. I have so much connection and, and a lot, a lot of love. I'm just very grateful for that. And so anyways, I'll get into my story. Um, I grew up in an alcoholic home. I'm proud to say that every member of my immediate family has been sober in AA at one time or another. And I don't know. Uh, I, I'm not like Patrick said, I'm not here to blame my parents or anything. I, I don't know that growing up in an alcoholic home helped, you know, shape me in an alcoholic or anything. I will say this. I don't think it got in the way. I think like, <laughs> I, like I definitely think it was like, it was crazy. It was craziness in my family. Like create, not all crazy, bad, actually crazy, good, some crazy intense stuff. My dad was a really violent person. He would handle things physically with us. My, my brothers and I with my mom, they'd get into it. And the majority of fights they got into, to be honest, my mom started it. She was like, uh, my dad was this like first generation from Ireland. Uh, he was just had a bad temper, like fly off the handle, just like very, un, just never knew what was going to, my dad was crazy. He would go after us. I remember growing up, he went after one of my teachers physically, you know, he just was crazy. Everybody in the neighborhood was scared of my dad. Like, you know, when I, I had two daughters, they all have these sleepovers, like, I would have friends sleep over my house once and they would never come back again. Like it was just like, no thanks, you know? And, uh, and then my mom was just like Dr. Jekyll Miss Hyde alcoholic. She was a sweet, sweet woman from Switzerland. Like been here like 50 years. She still just has a really thick accent, but day, by day she would like rescue stray cats and dogs and bring meals to the homeless downtown LA. And she was just a sweet woman. I, I mean, I was super close with my mom. I'm a total mama's boy. We, uh, and, um, but at night she just gets enough alcohol in her and she literally transforms. Like she just like, and almost like she gets big, her hair stands up and she's like a mean drunk. Like the Swiss are supposed to be neutral, but she is like, uh, I mean, she likes to fight. Like uh, we joke around my brother's like the witching hours. Like if she, if I get a call from my mom at eight o'clock at night, she's got some grievance. She, wants, she wants to air some grie her grievances. And uh, she just is that way. And so I remember like my early memories, like laying in bed and my mom, like just giving it to my dad, just like, and uh, I remember just thinking like, shut up, you know? And, uh, and then I'd be like, help, he's coming after me. You know, and then, my, and then my brothers and I would run out. It was just crazy. But my parents also like, listen, I, when you grow up in violence and how, it, it messed, definitely that I had grew up with a lot of fear for sure. But I really believe if I would have grown up in like the nicest, you know, most stable house, I still had a disease and a discomfort about me from the time I could walk from the time I had any kind of memory or recollection, I had a disease and a discomfort. And I feel bad and I take actions. Like I'm just, I, the actions I take is like, I'm a 
I was getting into fights all the time. I destroyed people's property. From the time I started walking to and from school, I would just like rip up people's mail. I would like destroy people's property. It just made me feel good. I don't know, just like a sense of accomplishment. You know, like vandalizing people's property made me feel good. I don't know why. Being really, really mean to people made me feel good. It just made me feel better. And like, like every classroom I had growing up, uh, I had a segregated part of the classroom. Like I, everybody would be sitting here and I would be in the corner. Teachers would like build partitions around me because I just can't sit still. I have to disrupt everybody. It's just who I am. Not that I hold on to anything, but the first day of fourth grade, I had this teacher, her name was Miss Puffer. She was a bitch actually, if I'm really being honest. But <laughs> the first day of fourth grade, we walk in and she's like, going through the O'Brien Prendergast and she pointed to the supply. She had a supply room closet in her classroom. And I'm like, she's like, your chair's in there this year, buddy. It's just like, what? <laughs> like, it's the first day of school. Like I couldn't even have done anything to get into trouble yet. And, but she knew, you know, and uh, actually I had a good year that year. I don't know. Just like a little more structure. I was able to like how to do better, but Anyway, so I was just out of control, you know, like I got, I was grounded for two summers in a row, you know, and because my parents were like super strict also, but they were also, you know, kind of like, you know, alcoholic craziness also, but my brothers and I were just all wild and I drank for the first time when I was 14 years old, much like Patrick, I just fell in love with it. I mean, from the very first time I drank, I, um, I just knew that I was going to drink the rest of my life. Like the very first time that I got enough alcohol in me that that magic that alcohol produces in me and in alcoholics, I just knew that this was going to be a part of my life for the rest of my life. I knew there's no way once I had it that there was any way to live without it. I mean, I, and it was almost like it was it's interesting because I actually had sworn off drinking. I wasn't going to drink. I wasn't going to do drugs. I was soup. My we were a big sports family like we were crazy about sports. My dad coaches in soccer. And, uh, and like, I played a ton of soccer. I loved all sports, but I fell in love with golf when I was like 11 years old. My dad had tried to play professionally and I just fell in love with it. I just worked my ass off. I got really good at it. And I had this dream of like playing, I'm going to play at UCLA. I didn't know anyone who went to UCLA. I don't know why, but I was like, I saw, I was watching the Rose Bowl one day, a uh, football game and, and they were talking about the gutty little Bruins that the underdog, they were always the underdogs. I just love being the underdog. I love that type of stuff. So I was like, I want to go to UCLA. I'm going to play golf at UCLA. And I would tell everybody I'm going to do it. And, uh, but this one teacher kind of could like, Hey, don't start drinking. Don't start doing drugs. Uh, and so I was like, I'm never going to drink. I'm never going to do drugs. And this one friend of mine convinced me to get drunk for the first time. And it was like, my life just changed just a complete revolution in my life. I mean, just a 180 degree turn and everything was better. Like, it's not even like there was not anything that was worse. Once I started drinking, I started drinking at every opportunity. I had started high school. Now I did really well in golf because I had worked really hard for like two or three years before that. And it was like Bill Wilson's story. He talks about like money and applause came his way. I so identify with that. It was not money and applause for me. It was that I did really well in golf. And for the first time really in my life, for some reason, in high school, I just did better. It's like, I think it was like I had that, I knew I had that magic that alcohol produces in me to look forward to just on the weekends. But then what happened is within six months, I was drinking more days than I wasn't drinking. And things were just going really good. And then within a year, I was drinking every single day. Was It was most of the time just like in the afternoons and then night, but every single day. And within two years, I was a full-blown alcoholic. 
And what happened for me is my alcoholism like progressed really rapidly, but I didn't see it. I, like I couldn't see it. One of the, I was talking with people I sponsor or people I knew, one of the scariest things for me about alcoholism or being an alcoholic for me, and this is just my experience, is like when I was drinking and even in sobriety, I could not see honestly and accurately what was really going on in my life. Because what happened is I became a full-blown alcoholic. Everybody around me was concerned, like gravely concerned. But when I got to alcoholics, I was like right before, I felt so, so alone, like such a victim, like nobody had been there for me. Nobody had really been there for me. You know what I mean? It's such a joke that I felt that way. I had so many people trying to intervene in my life. So many people like, Keith, what are you doing? We're really concerned about you, coaches, teachers, you know. And actually before, like, I went downhill really bad, uh, my brother got sober, which I had no problem with him getting sober. I wasn't like, oh, my God, because he, like, had gone off the deep end. He was, like, dealing LSD, and he was, sell you know, selling it and, like, started doing it all the time. And then he started having bad trips to LSD. And I'm not here to tell his story, but it's kind of a part of what happened in our life is, he started having bad trips. It was like one day he's like, everybody get up. Everybody get up. It was like three in the morning. We all go out in the living room and just like, what? He's like, I'm like, Jesus, I have to die tonight to save all of you. It's just like, what? Like, I was like, and I'm, I, anyone who's been around anyone who has a bad trip, LSD, it is no joke. I mean, it's, it's scary. And, but I was like, what? And my first generation European parents were like, what the hell is going on, you know? And they took him to the hospital and like, and then it was just like this big deal. It's like, whoa. And then, and he was like, whoa, dude, that was bad. I'm never doing, I'm never doing LSD again. And I was like, all right, cool. He's like, but I'm going to keep dealing. It's like, okay, you know, how that, you know, you know how that goes. Like two weeks later, everybody get up. It was like, he always made his transformation to the Messiah at like three in the morning. It was never like noon, you know? And, uh, but I was pissed. Because, like, at least then, I don't know how it is now, but Europeans were definitely had a different perspective about things. Like, we could have a beer sometimes with dinner or whatever. And just, like, my parents were kind of, they were very strict about so much, like school and doing this stuff. But, but the drinking thing was kind of, they were kind of chill about it a little bit. And he's like, now this is, like, starting to affect me because they're like, wow, maybe something else is going on there. It's actually funny because my dad was such a crazy person and so strict. This one time, my mom went to Switzerland to uh, to visit her her in her family, and my dad was trying to play it cool with us, which he never. I don't know why he did it this one particular time. And he's like, "Well, you know, I'd smoke pot with you guys if you guys had any." And then all three of us were like, you know, like, oh. <laughs> "Well, Dad, you happen to be in luck. We're all holding." You know? so I still remember he almost like stuck to himself, like, "Holy smoke!" Man. And I'll never forget him over like smoking some pot with us, and then like. He was just eating ice cream, <laughs> standing by the freezer, just eating ice cream. I was like, wow, dad's got the butt cheeks. But, uh, anyway, so the third time my brother had this like episode, he like uh, jumped in his car and he drove his car into this house and he almost killed this baby. It was like, it's crazy. Like he hit the corner of this house because we lived up on a hill and he was, he thought he was driving off a cliff and he just drove into this house. And he hit the corner of a house and knocked it off its, the entire foundation. Like, you think, like, I'd be ashamed of that in my family. I was telling my friends, let's drive by. Look what my brother did, you know. But he ended up in rehab as a result of that. And the reason I mentioned that, because it kind of changed things in our family and in our lives a little bit. Like, as far as, uh, 
and, and what happened is like we started family therapy so it's like the four of us practicing alcoholics and my brother who's like out of his mind he was this hardcore punk rocker crazed like he would spent like a few weeks on like the mental whatever and then they put him in the uh, chemical dependency which is what it was called back then and we went to these family therapy groups which were just amazing they were so incredible like i they weren't videotaped but i would give anything for the videotapes of those sessions because it was just amazing like first of all like they start in on my dad about his drinking the guy is he's like why don't you tell your father how his drinking has affected you and my dad's sitting there like yeah go ahead yeah. <laughs> fire away it's just like uh I was like, I don't think that's a good idea, Dr. Lur. You know, he'll kill us all. You know, it's just like, and then my mom walked, I still remember walking down the hallway after that session at the Lamo Hospital in Torrance. And my mom was just like, cause she just loved that they were sticking it to my dad. And, uh, and, and then the next week they were on her about her drinking and she stormed out of there. I was like, he's a real nosy son of a bitch. You know, it's just like, and then the next week they're on my brother Chris about his drinking, which is so funny to me. It's so bizarre. You know, we all have different characteristics and how, who we are, how we are. And it's so amazing to me because the doctor was like, do you think you could stay sober? And my brother Chris is really like a stubborn, like, uh, and he was like, yeah, I can do it. He goes, well, try. He's like, fine, I will. And, uh, and then he tried to, and he couldn't. And it really started messing with him, which to me is so amazing. Cause like the next week, like I know what's coming. Like I'm not an idiot. And I'm like, Dr. Lert, before you get started, I just wanted you to know, since Kevin's been in here, I decided to support him. So I haven't been drinking or using at all. And these last 27 days or whatever it was, and he's like, just eating it up. He's like, that's wonderful, Keith. And, uh, and then my other brother, Chris, is like, because I we were in the parking lot right before drinking Foster's tall cans and smoking a joint. You know, it's just like, I don't know. I, I just felt like I could get a little more out of therapy. You know, like just get a little really open up you know and uh it's so funny because i did not even i didn't even plan to say that like that's the way i am like truth means nothing to me like integrity doing the right thing as far back from when i can walk i was a liar and a cheat and a chisel and a mooch and i used everybody i did not my middle brother, Kevin, had like a really strong conscience about right or wrong. He wouldn't do hard drugs around me, anything like that. He always wanted to be like a, I had zero conscience about right and wrong. I mean, zero. And the, the funny thing is I got arrested the very next day after that session. I remember my dad came to pick me up and he's all, he's like, sober, huh? You know, just like, and I'm like. <laughs> anyway, to tell you what a badass guy I was, he was like, who sold you this? Because it was like still in the stages where I was like, you know, he thought maybe it was somebody else's fault. And uh, and I was like, I, I knew I shouldn't tell him. He's like, I'm going to kick your ass until you do it. I'm like, it was Chris, my brother. You know, it's like, that tells you what kind of badass I was, you know. But anyways, so, um, so, you know, at that point, things were still working for me. And it was like, people talk about like fun and then fun with problems and then all problems. Like I, at that time when my brother got sober, it was just all fun for me at that point like everything was just still working just incredible and uh i don't know if anyone has experienced this the the going to an aa meeting during that phase of your alcoholism because i went to give him a cake and i just couldn't believe it i was like 
wow. I mean, I don't know if anyone's experienced this, but like I walked in there and first of all, I was like, what do we like cake? I don't know. We didn't, we weren't bringing the cake and like, we're going to give him a cake. I didn't even know what they're talking about. And then they started singing happy birthday to him. Like they did tonight, by the way, happy birthday to all the people and welcome to all the new people. But, uh, and I was just horrified. I was like, they're happy birthday. I thought it was like, we're going to break out like the hats and the party favors. And I was like, wow. And then some guy got up the same night and he took a cake for like, four years four years and i remember just looking at that guy going wow like that guy has been sober for four years and he's so weak that he still has to go to meetings like i i felt like telling him like hey buddy it's up to you but i wouldn't acknowledge that at the group level you know like, I, I would just keep that to yourself like wow and i just like you know, like somebody called a, a quick, uh, you know, spot check or market analysis or something or whatever. Like I was like, never, I will never go to Alcoholics Anonymous. Like no way. It was just like looking at like the leper colony. It was like no chance. And so what happened is my alcoholism literally progressed like wildfire, like I said. And I felt like I was like, nobody had been there. I was drinking in the morning, drinking at lunch, drinking in the afternoon. And, you know, when that starts happening, people start realizing it. And like, I remember like the dean of my high school, uh, they were always like pulling me in and searching me because they thought I was dealing drugs, which I never did successfully at all. And so they, uh, but this, well, the last time that she pulled me in, I think it was my junior year, I'm pretty sure. Uh, but I had been up like two or three nights that particular time. And I was like all smug, like, go ahead, search me. I didn't have anything on me. And she said, look at you, look at you. And she started crying. She's like, you were doing so well. Don't you see? Don't you see what's going on? And at that time, as crazy as it sounds, I still thought I'm going to UCLA. I'm going to play golf there. The golf coach is going to call me every day. Everything's going to be fine. But I just couldn't see it. And I went from being all smug to like, oh, my God, like, get me out of here. You know, that look, that look we get from people. I swear, if I don't get anything else out of Alcoholics Anonymous, it's just not getting that look from people all the time. And I'm overpaid, you know. And, uh, you know, it's funny. I uh, I remember talking to my parents. I was just delusional. Like, I remember talking to my dad. I mentioned something about, oh, yeah, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to apply to some colleges or whatever. And he's like, are you serious? Like, you're joking, right? And I was like, no. And then he's like. Regina, he called my mom over and they both just started laughing. I'm like, great. I've worked so hard, you know, it's like, which is such a joke. And he's, I remember him saying like, I'm not going to go pay for you to go to college and drink for four years. And I started telling people like, oh, you know, my dad, he's not going to pay, you know, and uh, this one friend of mine, I'd grown up with him, but he, he and I kind of took different paths because I was like a full-blown alcoholic and he just kept doing well. And uh, I remember his mom came to me and she said, hey, I heard that your dad's not going to help you go to college. And David's moving back east to go to school. And if you want to come in, move in with us, uh, we, you can. And we'll you apply to Cal State Dominguez Hills and we'll pay for your books and your tuition. You know? And I was like, wow, that's so nice. You know, Thank you. She's like, but go get that application. It's like, hey, okay. And the next time I ran into her, she's like, did you get that application? It's like, no, no, no. But tomorrow I will tomorrow, you know, cause today I'm busy, you know, and today I'm drinking and I don't know about you. I'm going to steal a line from a guy named Hank Johnson who's been dead for a long time, but he said, uh, you know, drinking gives me the uh, feeling of a job well done without doing a damn thing. 
And it's like, I went, as long as I'm drink like that magic, that I'm already on the team at UCLA. I'm already, you know what I mean? Like, and uh, the next time she saw me, she was here. She had gone down and got me the application and gave it to me. And it sat in my room like a 10,000 pound weight. I was incapable. It just asked for my personal information and I was incapable of doing it. Just absolutely incapable. And what happened is like, I kicked off the golf team my senior year, which was like a shock to nobody but me. And I mean, I was like, oh my God, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Which is such a joke. I never even got better. I just stayed about the same for four years. And, uh, but at that point I couldn't even convince myself that things were fine. And I started kind of doing crazier and crazier things to stay drunk and loaded all the time. Uh, I'd get jobs, I'd get fired always for stealing, just always stealing, get arrested, stealing, possession, whatever. And I turned 18 and my parents were just done with me. And, uh, and they were just, you know, watching the clock to kick me out of the house uh, until I graduated from high school. And I turned 18, I got arrested for theft again but now i'm an adult and then the last time i got arrested uh, was like june 20th 1989 and it was for strong arming some woman for a purse in broad daylight and i'd love to say like that's not the type of guy that i had become but that's exactly the type of person that i had become and uh, like i said i was sitting in that holding cell and i never did any like hard time or anything like that i was just some two-bit punk uh you know and uh but i i, I knew that my life wasn't working anymore and I knew that it was not going to change. I knew I was going to jail for like a year. And I went to see this lawyer. I had played golf with his son, and he was a really good guy. I th I've thought about this a lot, actually. I didn't know that guy was in AA when I went up to his office. Uh, but when he told me he was in AA and he invited me to a meeting, you know, he was a good man. He was a good guy. He had genuinely been kind to me. He was a member of the Palos Verdes Country Club. And he had gone out of his way to be nice. I don't know if he saw that I was kind of an at-risk kid or whatever. He got me into these tournaments sometimes with these country club kids. I remember one time I played really well and I won this tournament and I looked up and he had tears in his eyes. And I was just like, it's so weird. Like, first of all, I didn't care about anybody else. So that was foreign to me. But I just thought, man, he's a really good dude. And when I found out he was sober and alcoholic synonymous, it was, it was not like something that was like, oh, he's, you know, I thought, wow, he's a good guy. And I think about that because I try and conduct myself out there. And I'm believing, like I coach basketball, a lot of basketball. I'm obsessed about it. If you saw me on the sidelines, you wouldn't think, wow, Bill and Bob would really be proud of that guy. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> you know, like, but uh, anyways, um, so, uh, but I went to that guy and he, uh, he offered to meet me at a meeting the next night. He said, you want to meet me at this meeting? And I skateboarded that meeting on a skateboard I bought with a stolen credit card. I was wearing a pair of high top sneakers that I bought with a different stolen credit card. And I walked in there. And like I said, I did not think I was an alcoholic. It was the foot stompers in Redondo Beach and they stomped their feet when they clapped. There was a lot of energy, like a lot of energy. And it just seemed like too much to be honest. Like everyone just seemed way too happy to be there. Like I was just like, whoa, pump the brakes a little bit. Like it just was a bit much. It felt like people were like, how are you doing? Like how are you really doing? How, you know, like in your face, it was just like, and I'm sure they were just like, hey, welcome. Uh, are you new here? But it just felt like too much. It just felt like too much. And I was just like, and everyone kept telling me how lucky I was. Oh, you! how old are you? Oh, you're so lucky. Oh, you're so lucky. I just wanted to stab him in the eye with a fork. It's just like, you know, like I was 18 and a half. Like, how could you say I'm lucky to be there? Like, come on. Like, I did not feel lucky. I, I promise you that. 
And I remember uh, I ended up getting into this recovery house. I started going to some meetings. Um, actually, really, when I think of like the, the craziest thing that happened to me was like my second day of sobriety. Uh, this guy called me up. He offered to take me to a meeting. I didn't give anybody my phone number that night, but that lawyer had given this guy my phone number. And this guy was on fire for AA. And he took me to this men's stag in Manhattan Beach. And he was talking about this morning meeting, like, oh, it's the best meeting in Alcoholics Anonymous. He's all fired up. And he's like, oh, it's just the best. It's the best. And then, like, I, I heard on the way back from the meeting, I heard something come out of my mouth. And he was like, I said, would you mind, would you give me a ride there tomorrow? And it was like one of those, like, you know, like, right when I said it, I regretted it. Like, why did I say that? Like, so stupid. Of course, he was like, sure, I'd love to, you know. And he lived in San Pedro, and I lived in Holland Riviera, which is like context. It's like 25 minutes away. The morning meeting was like five minutes from his house. So 25 minutes to my house, 25 minutes to the morning meeting. And, uh, and he and two other guys, all with like less than 90 days of sobriety, came and picked me up every single day. That became my first home group, Monday through Friday, the Sunrise Group Attitude Adjustment Meeting. And my life really changed at that meeting. And uh, they ended up getting me, and those three guys, one of those three guys ended up getting me into a recovery house or kind of being instrumental and in introducing me to some people. I ended up in a recovery house in San Pedro, actually, which I think they were just doing to shorten their commute, if you want to know the truth. But uh, no, that's But I ended up in that recovery house and that was really like a big deal for me. I don't think that it's like mandatory for anybody or whatever, but it was definitely like a big deal for me because like they talked in a language that I understood. They would be like, all right, new business. You know, the chairman would run the meeting and he would be like, go over stuff or whatever. And they'd be like, Keith, dude, because I was a filthy human being. I mean, my whole life, it has nothing to do with my parents. My oldest brother lives to this day, like in the, like his house looks like a Marine barracks just everything clean. He takes like five showers a day. I was just a disgusting human being. I, I probably brushed my teeth. I'm not, I'm not trying to exaggerate for the podium. This is fact. Probably five times in six months before I got sober. Like no joke. I did not like bathing. I was just disgusting. I didn't do laundry. I just recycled clothes. And uh, I was ahead of the curve as far as saving the planet. Now that I think about it. <laughs> just doing my part. Anyway, that's a lie. I was just a filthy, disgusting human being. I mean, believe me when I tell you I was disgusting. And they would be like, new business. And the chairman's like, Keith, dude, do your laundry. Your room stinks. Maybe throw in a shower. You know, like, and I was like, and they just want to move on. And I would be like, wait, hold on one second. You know, can I explain, you know, da, da, da. and I don't know if there's any other explainers here tonight in this meeting. But if there are, I got some bad news for you. Nobody cares why you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. And I mean, nobody. And they got me to take action. They talked in a language that I understood. They were like, Keith, what are you, what are you doing? What do you, what, like, what do you do? You go to this morning meeting, you come back, you go sleep or hang out all day or go play basketball. And then you go to me tonight. And I was like, no, I'm a student. And they're like, oh, really? I'm like, yeah. And they're like, well, when's the last time you went to a class? And I was like, well, it's been a couple months. It's like, yeah, you're not a student. Get a job. Like, how are you paying your rent? Well, my dad's helping. No, no, no. If mommy and daddy paying your bills would have worked, you wouldn't need to come to AA. You've got to be self-supporting. Today's Thursday, you know, Tuesday or Thursday. You got till next week, find a job or pack your stuff. And I was like, that kind of language I just understood. I went out and walked around and walked around the neighborhood. And I got a job at a gas station. I'm like, 
this will just be temporary now that I'm sober, I'm going to build my empire, you know, but uh, <laughs> turns out for me, not so much. Uh, I ended up working at that gas station my first three and a half years of sobriety. So if you're new, there's hope for you. But I, um, I learned more at that job, though, than I have at every other job combined in my life. It wasn't the first paycheck I got. But at some point after a few months, I got a paycheck and I hadn't stolen anything for two weeks. And I got that paycheck and I, like Patrick talked about, like, uh, you know, uh, a dime's worth of work for a nickel's worth of pay or whatever. It's like, I had done a good job, I'd worked hard, and I realized there's something more than money to a paycheck. That there's something else there when you just do your best. Like, I want to come to the meeting because like, guess what, everybody? I worked eight hours today. It's like, yeah, me and 150 other million Americans. It's like, nobody can. But in an alcoholic, I, I want credit for doing what I'm supposed to be doing, you know? <laughs> and so, but in that recovery house, they got me to take those actions. And uh, I remember, uh, you know, then they'd be like, do you have a sponsor? And it was just like, yeah, of course I have a sponsor, like all indignant. It's like, well, we don't have, there was a one phone. This is 1989. There was a phone in the house. That was the phone that everybody had that phone for you young people here. There's like, that was the, the phone. And th they never saw me use the phone to call the sponsor. And so they deduced that I don't have a sponsor. And I was like, uh, and I was like, of course I have a sponsor. They're like, well, what's his phone number? And I'm like, well, I don't have a committed to memory, you know? And they're like, well, when's the last time we talked to him? It's like, well, it's been a couple of months. It's like, yeah, you don't have a sponsor. Get one. You got till Tuesday, you got till Thursday. Get one or pack your stuff. And I was like, God, you know, just like all of in my business, you know? So I asked this guy to be my sponsor. He was kind of like, he would be around the house sometimes and buy pizza. He seemed like a good guy. I don't know. And uh, this is how much of a fog I was living in. Because I was like, in a, when I was newly sober, I was just like in this fog he was dating one of the guys in the house and I was the only one who didn't know it. I just, I don't know, like, <laughs> I, I, and I never would have asked him if I knew he was gay. Never, ever. And I guarantee you in 1989 in San Pedro, you getting ready? <laughs> uh, I like that. You I, I love the commitment to the side. It's like, uh, anyways, uh, <laughs> whoever has that commitment next year has got some big shoes. Yeah. On, uh, they got some, hey, they got some big arms to fill right there. Anyways, uh, I digress. But uh, so um, anyways, he, uh, I was just like in a fog and I, I, I didn't even know. And in 1990 in San Pedro, not a lot of guys were out, I promise you. But that guy saved my life. You know, when I look back and on the, my memories of early sobriety, I, I tell you one thing, if you're new or relatively new, you know, and anyone who's been sober long term that you look back, or at least I do, I look back on those times with such fondness. Like I was out of my mind. I was crazy. I was struggling. I would feel like just on the fence, you know? And one of the coolest things about A is seeing people come in and like Patrick, uh, you know, I've known Patrick since he was brand new. He didn't have time to tell the story, but that girl that he was dating is one of my favorite stories in AA. He's like, I know it's about being of service. So he went to his exes and broke in and cleaned up her apartment, you know, and uh, <laughs> it's like, just be of service. Thy will be done, father. You know, it's like, and his sponsor's like, yeah, that's not being of service. That's breaking and entering, you know? <laughs> Anyways, but seeing people come in here and grab onto this thing and get this life, like that happened for me. And it's like, so listen, man, and like they talked about, or somebody mentioned, there'd be some people here next 
you know, it won't be some people here next year who are here. I could be one of them, you know? And I look back on those times. There's such like fond memories going through the book with that guy in his house and him taking me through the steps and realizing that, Oh my God, like I'm an alcoholic. Like alcoholism is my problem. I was two years sober when I was really convinced to my innermost self that I was an alcoholic, like two years sober. And I'm so grateful that I was given enough grace and I took enough actions to stay here and to go through these steps and learn what alcoholism was and realize that that's my problem. I thought I had other problems, you know, and shockingly, I was one of those alcoholic men who had problems with relationships, you know, it was like right from the start. My first prayer, real sincere prayer in AA was like six months over. I was like, God, I've been sober for six months. I, I really think like a girlfriend would be awesome. You know? <laughs> and, uh, and boom, God just answered my prayer. It was unbelievable. I should have been a little more specific though, because it turns out she was married. So it was kind of a little like, you know, <laughs> I remember like my boss, cause I like in, in a, fervor of lust one night at the at the gas station i i left i was closing and i left out of there and i left the front door unlocked the alarm off and uh and the safe opened and we got and we got broken into you know and was like my saving grace was they it was a floor safe and the thieves somehow didn't see that and uh but anyways and i remember my boss was like so what happened last night and you know how we are. I should have just said nothing, but I start vomiting up. Well, you know, my girlfriend, well, she's married. Her husband's being a real jerk. And da, 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 and she was upset and she really needed to see me. You know, it's like, he's like, whoa, whoa, stop, 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 stop. He's like, yo, Keith, you see that corner there? He didn't say yo, actually, but I did. <laughs> I'm improvising, but he uh, he's like, see that corner there? And I was like, yeah. And he goes, whatever problems you have, just leave them there. He said, when you're here, just do your job. And he was not an alcoholic. But I have that advice to me has rung true in my life so much. It's like, just do my job here. What's my job here? Just do that. You know, and I really struggled in that area. I really struggled in relationships for sure. Like I was, and it was like, it would, it would be like, you know, sitting in front of like a burning house after burning house after burning house. And then I realized like, oh my God, I'm the one setting the fire. Like I'm the one who's doing it. It's me. It's not them. And that was really a struggle, I got to say, for me. And, uh, you know, I ended up, uh, ha you know, moving to West Los Angeles. I ended up, trans I went to Harvard College and then I transferred to UCLA, which had been my dream to go to school there. And I just couldn't believe it when I got that acceptance letter. Uh, you know, it's funny. I never even picked up my diploma from UCLA. Isn't that weird? But I, that acceptance letter is hanging in my office. Because that day when I got that, I couldn't believe that I was going to UCLA. And it's not even that big of a deal. Like you tran anybody can transfer there. But for me, it was a big deal. And the day I grad, you know, my dad and I had this really difficult relationship because I had broken his heart. He was like a hard man, but we got really close because of golf. And then I'd broken his heart. And the day I graduated from UCLA was like, and I had made amends to him, but it was a struggle for years, years. And I was like five or six years sober when I graduated from UCLA or seven years sober. And, uh, and he got lost from our family and I got lost from the people I was with and ran it. We ran into each other and we both just cried. And he was like, I'm so proud of you. And he did not say that type of stuff. He's like, 
you did this, you did this all on your own. Cause I didn't ask him for a dime because my sponsor wouldn't let me. <laughs> and uh, he's like, and I was like, I didn't say it to him cause I wanted to take the credit, but I was like, I thought, you know, I didn't do it on my own. It was cause of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know? And, uh, but he was really proud of me, you know, and he got sober and was five years sober and drank again and drank himself to death. And it was really tough. I got to say, watching my, uh oh here comes a sign i'm talking about my dad dying boy he's heartless <laughs> five minutes buddy five minutes nobody cares that your dad died all right all that matters is the time freaking love this guy man anyways like wait till i get to the part where i die of leukemia there you go man. anyways um <laughs> i digress i'm sorry but um like there's ups, I will say there's certainly ups and downs in, in sobriety. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I met, I finally, like, I took the right actions. I changed my behavior. I, you know, like dating without like burning people or using people or hurting people. Cause like, there's a line in the big book that says, if we're not sorry about our behavior and we continue to harm others, we're quite sure to drink. We're not theorizing. These are facts from our experience. And I was absolutely heading that way because of my behavior. And I changed my behavior and I changed and as a result of getting a sponsor who really helped me. And, and then I, I, all of a sudden my life searching, I met a woman, Yuko in AA. And she's, she's incredible. She's an incredible member of Alcoholics Anonymous. She really is. She does more to help alcoholics than anyone I know. And I know a lot of good AAs, but I'm an alcoholic. Like the, my condition is like, I could just be sitting there. I look across the room at her and I think ah, I could be better. You know, it's just like, that's just the way my condition is, you know? Like there's no, there's nobody in the world that is so incredible that they can, that that's not what my condition is. Like somebody said, who took a cake. I think it was the young lady who took a year. It's like, love you until you can love yourself. It's like, I, I love the expression. It's like, you, we love you until you can love somebody else. And then you realize how much you're loved. You know, and that's happened to me. And like, my wife is incredible. You know, we have these two kids, you know, I think there's some misrepresentation. I'm glad there's some young people here tonight. There's some misrepresentation in AA. I just want you to know that people talk about how wonderful their kids are, how wonderful it is. It's like, I'm going to tell you it like it is. Kids are a giant pain in the ass. They are so easy to make and they're so hard to take care of. That, you know, that has been my experience. Like they're so selfish. Oh my God. You know, like, but I will say I, I, I have these two daughters. I absolutely believe I was meant to be a father to these daughters. I just, have, they gave me so much joy and I just love and parenting is hard as hell, but it was so much fun. And Kiko is something, you know, she was like this, she was the like perfect child. Her sister was a nightmare. She was like a devil child. And uh, Kiko was so good. And the Kira was a nightmare. Liar, dishonest, manipulative. I don't know where she gets it from, you know, and uh, maybe Yuko, but, um, and Kiko, when she was 15 years old, it was like, she just was like the exorcist. Her head just turned around and she just, and I couldn't, I, I was under the misconception that I could, because I, I might be good or bad in a lot of things, but I was a really good father. I was a present father, and Yuko and I, we were great parents. You know, I, I have my faults, but we were we were present, and I was like, people would say, I'm saving a seat for my kid, and I think, not me, man. I thought, I was under the misconception that I could love any potential alcoholism out of my kid. I really thought, no way, not me. 
And when she became an alcoholic, I couldn't believe it. I just couldn't believe it. It was the most heartbreaking thing. She was 19 years old. We had to kick her out of the house. It must be time for a sign because here comes like, <laughs> just kidding. So, uh, and she was, she ended up living on the streets and living in her car. And I, I just couldn't believe it. She would pull up in, into our house and sleep in her car outside of our house tonight. And I'm telling you, anybody who's been through this knows the level of heartbreak that for a parent like that, it was so tough. She's doing great now. She's three years sober and doing really well. I'm super grateful for it. But listen, it doesn't mean that God loves me. God loves me more than the people who's kid. Listen, uh, today, right before Patrick came, one of the guys I sponsor called me, his son who had been sober a few years, is drinking again and using and going out hard. And like, you know, he's got a guy who's been in multiple overdoses. It's just heartbreaking, you know. I will say that could be me next week. Could be Patrick, could be any of us, you know. Uh, but I'm extremely grateful for the life I had. I, I, you know, when I was new, I somebody sent me down to the uh, South Bay Roundup and this guy's like, Fred's going to read chapter five. And this guy got up, he's like, my name's Fred. I'm a grateful alcoholic. And the crowd went into like a frenzy and I was sitting there just seething. I was like, man, I hope Fred gets into a car accident on the way home. And it's like, <laughs> it was just so repulsive to me. Like, there's no way you can be that grateful to be here. Like, give me a break. So, and Fred's honor, I thought, I'll say this and then I'll, I'll shut up. I thought, what am I the most grateful for? And I thought of three things that I'm the most grateful for. The first is my physical sobriety, that I'm not putting anything in my body that affects me from the neck up, nothing. I know that's an unnatural state for me. And I don't ever want to lose sight of how lucky I am that I have the solution in Alcoholics Anonymous and I'm not battling the obsession to drink and losing. And the second thing I'm the most grateful for is how I feel in my own skin most of the time. As a result of working these steps and having a God in a spiritual awakening, I feel comfortable in my own skin. And I didn't feel that way my entire life and well into sobriety. Sometimes people a couple years sober are like, what am I doing wrong? It's like, you're not doing anything wrong. Some, it's like sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly, you know, and I'm grateful how I feel. I have peace of mind and a purpose in my life. And I'm really grateful. The last thing is this purpose we have in Alcoholics Anonymous. I really feel like it's the best deal in town. Seeing people come in whose lives are broken in every way, just like mine, and they get put back together and we get to celebrate it together a day at a time. Like there's people I know in AA, I don't even know their last name and I feel a genuine love for them. And I really believe that's a spiritual experience for people like us. So if you're new, I wish those three things on you. So thanks. Let me share.